pray, and then we'll uh, get started. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. And Lord, pray tonight that as we look into um, your word, that you would be able to apply this lesson to our hearts practically in our own Christian lives. And and Father, we pray that you would um, just oversee our time together. Give us the mind to concentrate on your word and and to apply it to our own lives. And, And pray for those who are here and thank you for their presence. And we also pray for those who couldn't make it and pray that you would continue to watch over them and remind them that you're there with them as well. And so we just ask your blessing upon your word tonight. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. Lessons from the lives of the judges of Israel. Last week, remember, we looked at the first judge, uh, Othniel, and uh, he's, he was called the Lion of God. And we talked about Israel's compromise, how they uh, interacted with the Canaanites. We talked about Israel's chastisement and how God was not pleased with what they did. And then we also looked at Israel's champion, and uh, that was the judge Othniel. So tonight we're going to be looking at verses 13, or 12 to down to 30. And remember, this is the period of time, 400 years, where Israel follows this weird pattern, predictable pattern, of... Um, Trusting God, doing everything right, then they fall back into sin, they fall into worship, they get judged by God. God, they cry out for a deliverer, God gives them a deliverer, which is the judge, and then um, God forgives them and continues to bless them, and then they repeat the cycle, just like a washing machine. So it's kind of a a crazy thing, because we're going to be seeing that every week, but that's reality and really that's the reality of our own lives as well we don't live wholly fully for the lord each and every day um, after we become a a believer but tonight we'll be looking at how lefty killed hefty and uh you'll see where that comes from as we get into the 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 book uh the chapter three but israel was in the midst of this pattern they sinned against god and the Lord caused a king, Eglon was his name, a very large individual, uh, the king of Moab. And uh, the Lord caused him to become strong, and Eglon invaded Israel with the help of the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and together they oppressed Israel for 18 years. So this was a rather severe judgment on Israel. But when they repented, just like the cycle does, God raised up a man, Ehud was his name, to be their deliverer. And Ehud was able, through his crafty scheme, to uh, assassinate assassinate this king, Eglon, and he led Israel to victory and to freedom. And so it tells us a lot about our own personal lives, because a lot of times we follow the same pattern of disobedience, chastisement, restoration, forgiveness, the whole thing. And our problem, personally, is not the Moabites or the Ammonites or the Amalekites. Our problem is what? The problem that we have as Christians is the flesh, right? We deal with the flesh every day. And as this unfolds tonight, we'll see that Israel's enemies are really a clear um, picture or type of our enemy. They're really a picture of the flesh. Uh, Eglon is a perfect picture of the flesh. The Bible describes him as someone who was out of control. He was someone who was uh, self-indulgent. It calls him fat. 
No, that's not polite, but that's biblical language. Uh, he appeared to be lazy. He was evil. He was full of pride. And he was also assassinated by Ehud. And in Israel's defeat of Eglon, we see the picture of the battle that we're supposed to be fighting each and every day as believers. Every one of us has problems because we're still in the flesh. And sometimes we win our problems with the flesh. And frankly, sometimes we lose our battles with the flesh. And sometimes we don't fight against even the desires of the flesh like we should. Um, And every day we're basically called to fight for our very spiritual uh, welfare each and every day. And so we have to fight this battle to win it every time we enter the arena. And so this gives us the help. I think this passage will give us some insight and some help on how to best fight that battle with the flesh. Um, I want you to see tonight that they won their battle, Ehud and Israel, when they fought with Eglon, this evil, fat, lazy king. Um, They won their battle with those who oppressed them. They went through 18 years of oppression, of captivity under this king. And finally, God raised somebody up, and they were able to uh, defeat their oppressor. And you know what? The message for us is we can do the same thing as believers. We're called to do the same thing. We don't have to be a a slave to our fleshly uh, passions. Um, We can be free from the grip of sin. doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. But the Bible says that, that we can be free from the grip of sin. We can walk literally in victory if we'll fight this battle with the flesh the way God tells us to. Not easy, but that's how he tells us to do it. And so as we consider this, the the truths here revealed in the passage, we're going to be given tools, hopefully, that we need to fight the daily battle with the flesh that we deal with. Um, And so we're going to be looking at Israel's dilemma, Israel's deliverer, and Israel's deliverance. And... uh, We'll see that, but let's let's first let's just read from chapter or chapter three, beginning in verse twelve, and uh, we'll read the the story here, and it's rather graphic, so it's interesting. And the people of Israel, verse twelve, again, the cycle starting all over, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Notice it was the Lord who strengthened this king. Because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 13, he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, or Jericho as it's known. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. What cracks me up is it's always like a period of time. Right? you think as soon as you got defeated, you'd be crying out to the Lord, but not Israel. It seems like after 18 years, then they cried out to the Lord. So it's just kind of a weird, weird part of the cycle. They cried out to the Lord, verse 15, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man, hence lefty. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges. 
a cubit in length, about 14 inches. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. So he's left-handed, but he put it on his right thigh. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Eglon had finished presenting the tribute, when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded the king, silence, the king commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. So this is how big the ego was with this guy. He was full of pride. So he thought, oh, you have a secret message from me? For me? Okay, everybody else has to leave. I got to hear this secret message. Then Ehud came to him, and he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. They would have um, rooms on their roof in the Middle East because it's so hot, so they'd get up there to get away. And he says, Ehud said, I have a message from God for you, which caused even the king to rise. It's a message from God. Boy, he's going to be respectful, even though he's evil. And it says, uh, and he arose from his seat, and Ehud uh, reached with his left hand. Remember, nobody's there, just him and, and the king. Took the sword from his right thigh, thrust it into his belly, Verse 22, and the hilt also went in after the blade, the handle. So that's how hard he thrust this 14-inch blade into this fat guy's stomach. And it says the fat closed over the blade. I, love, I used to love teaching this to junior hires. They just, oh my gosh. The fat closed in over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. Basically, he relieved himself, is what that means. Then Ehud went out into the porch, and he closed the doors of the Ruth chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came, so he got away. And when they saw the doors of the Ruth chamber were locked, they thought, well, surely he is relieving himself. There were a bathroom up there, so he's probably in there going to the bathroom, in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited, and they waited till they were embarrassed. In other words, okay, something's going on in there. But when he did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and they opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. And Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Asira. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites. It did not allow anyone to pass over, and they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, all able-bodied men, not a man escaped, so they completely wiped him out. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for uh, 80 years. Um, interesting story. 
<coughs> and so as you look at that, the first thing we see is their dilemma, Israel's dilemma. How, what does this, you know, what's going on here? You, well, they're under horrible oppression from this king and the Moabites, and they, they're, they're under this oppression because they were disobedient to the Lord. They once again rebelled against the Lord, and uh, their problems stand as a warning to all those, really, who would walk away um, from the God who redeemed them. God had saved Israel before, he'll save them again. And he says, look, you don't, you don't get the privilege just to walk away from me. Um, you can't just go do what you want to do. You're called to serve me. You're my people. That's why I'm caring for you. And so let's look at the, verses 12 and 13, and we see their foes. Israel faced three nations because of the rebellion against God. They faced the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites. And so they have these three, and they join together because they probably figured, hey, we want to make sure we take Israel down. We don't want to have any chance of them being able to beat us. And each one of these nations were kind of a, a, a thorn in the side of Israel. Over and over, they had just continual problems. And, and all three, which I thought was kind of interesting, is connected to the nation of Israel by blood. Uh, the Amalekites were descendants from Esau, Jacob's twin brother. The Moabites and the Ammonites were descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. And so after Lot and his daughters were uh, delivered from Sodom and Gomorrah, you remember, Lot's daughter, remember what happened, got, her, got uh, him drunk, had um, relations with him, her father, and conceived Moab and Ammon. And that's where these two nations come from. And so all three of these nations, in their evilness, worshipped not the true God of Israel, but they, they, they worshipped false gods. Uh, the Moabites served a god called uh, Chemosh, and, and both uh, the Ammonites worshipped a god called Moloch. You've probably heard of that. And both of these gods were worshipped through this, this vile, sensual, sexual practices, as well as what they used to do is they used to sacrifice babies to their pagan gods. And so even back then, <laughs> people didn't have a whole lot of respect for uh, life. It's not just in our modern day. I would say abortion would be akin to what they used to do today, and, you know, because it, it's legalized, unfortunately. And then you had the Amalekites, and they were kind of a nomadic, warlike tribe of people, and they worshipped a variety of, of pagan gods. They, they worshipped whatever they could. And so all three of these nations were a continual kind of thorn in the side of Israel. They were constantly attacking and hindering and harassing them and seeking, seeking to enslave Israel um, and their people. And, and all three of these, these, these nations are really a picture of our old fleshly uh, natures, all right, that, that is, is uh, rendered dead um, is, as Christians. The Bible says that the old nature is, is dead. Okay? So don't, some people believe that when you become a Christian, now you're kind of schizophrenic because now you have a new nature and you have an old nature, and well, who are you going to listen to? That's not what the Bible teaches. And we've gone through that when we went through Romans, I believe. But it's important to understand that, you know, where do these sinful desires, if we don't have an old nature, where do they, they come from our flesh? <laughs> That's what Paul says. 
the sin that dwells in my flesh. All right, and so that's where the war comes from. The old nature is rendered dead. Um, but once again, our, our, our spiritual lives are continually attacked, just like these nations attacked Israel, kept on prodding them and poking them and everything. That's what our flesh does to us. And uh, it, it doesn't like the idea that we're on a path of holiness, we're on the way of righteousness. The flesh doesn't like that. The flesh likes the way of evil, the way of Satan. And that's where we're probably more prone to go, just naturally. All right? We don't usually make good decisions in our flesh that honor the Lord. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3 say, says this. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which, listen, you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3 says, among whom we all once lived. Right? Before Christ, that's where we lived. In, our, in the passions of our flesh, it says in verse 3. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so that was just our natural inclination. Uh, you know, sometimes we, we see someone and we'll say, oh, that, that, that person must have a good heart. No, the Bible says all of our hearts are desperately evil and wicked. Okay, we can't even understand how wicked they are. But God does. That's why we need to be saved. That's why we need to be transformed. That's why God gives us what? A new heart, right? Because the old one is just kaput. And even in, in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus addresses the idea that, look, we're, we're all, we all come from the same, this same place. He says to the Pharisees, he says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he, he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And that's when the, the Pharisees were um, accusing him of things and, and, and things like that. And so he just pointed out, hey, look, don't, don't get high on your horse. You're just like everybody else. And so the, the flesh that we carry around will do everything in its power to enslave us. It doesn't just sit by idly when we become a Christian and say, oh, I'll leave him alone now. No, we're still in the flesh. We still have this fleshly body. We live in a fleshly world. We live in an evil world. And it, it wants to do everything to prevent us um, from reaching our, our fullest potential in Jesus Christ. That's the whole game plan. So don't, don't be deceived. Your, your flesh hates God and it hates everything that God stands for. Um, it's never going to submit willingly to the word of God. Your flesh will never say, oh, okay, I'll, I'll do that if God tells me. It's not going to happen. It must be forced into submission by a strong show of force even, not, not by some timid hand. And that's why a lot of times we forget, we, we, we don't understand how strong the flesh is. L look over at Romans chapter 7. Turn over to the book of Romans because this is where Paul kind of describes this whole idea of the flesh and how powerful it is. 
Here's how he describes it. Look at verse 14, Romans 7, verse 14. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Paul writing, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. (laughs) Verse 16, Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells where? In me, within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. He qualifies it. Why does he qualify it? Why do you think he qualifies it? Why do you think Paul says there, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Why why would he make that qualification? Exactly, right? Yeah, because, I mean, he's a Christian, so he knows the Spirit resides within him. That's obviously good. So he has, to, he has to clarify it. Okay, in my flesh, in my fleshly body is what he's saying. For He goes on, he says, For I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. Is that true of you? It's true of me, almost daily. You know what to do is right, but man, it's hard to carry it out. Verse verse 19, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's not giving an excuse here for sin. He's not copping out to this. He's just stating a reality. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members, my flesh, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And so he he points out here very, very clearly to us that, you know, the first thing is their enemies are their foes. And you know what? We have that same enemy. It's called the flesh. And then we see here their their fights back to back to Judges, verse thirteen. Basically, these three these three nations joined together. They were all evil, and they thought, "Let's just take this people of God out at this point." And so they thought they wanted to be sure they finished the job, and so hey, let's all join up together. And so the king gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and they went. And it says, "And they defeated Israel." Maybe your translation says they smote Israel, okay? It means to strike. It means to, to hit, to beat, to slay, to kill. All right? They really did a, a job on them. And the, these, these friendly or these pagan armies did not come simply to have, uh, you know, a little friendly picnic chat with Israel. That wasn't their, their, even in their mind. They came to wipe them out, to destroy them. And so here Israel is really in a fight for its own existence. And, um, 
you know, the, the, the battle we wake up to every day is just as serious. Is just as serious as what Israel was facing here. We're in a fight every day for our spiritual welfare. Every day we wake up, we know that there's going to be a battle to be had. Um, Paul describes it this way in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. He says this, But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. That's where that spiritual war comes in. Notice he says flesh. He doesn't say the old nature. The old nature is done. And he says, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so we all have different areas in which we fight this spiritual, this fleshly battle every day. Um, it may be how you manage your time. It may be how you, you manage your thought life. It may be man, how you manage your relationships or your money or whatever. But sooner or later, the flesh is going to cause a disruption in you carrying out um, the desire of your heart as a believer would be to do what honors Christ, what honors God. And so you're trying to put into practice biblical principles in your marriage, in your finances, all these different areas. But you know what? The Satan's not just going to sit by. He's going to cause you through the flesh to be tempted to walk away from those principles and to employ your own strategy or even the strategy that's sometimes even a non-biblical strategy. And sometimes we win these battles and sometimes we lose them. Um, and, and basically, the, the way you're going to know who is going to win, is the spirit going to win or the flesh going to win? It's really, who are you yielding to as you fight? Who are you yielding to? Uh, Romans 6, Paul writes this in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? And then he says, either of sin, <laughs> which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So Paul points it out in, in Romans 16, in case you know we miss this at all, you have a choice to make each and every moment of your Christian life. Who are you going to obey? Are you going to obey the Spirit? Or are you going to obey the flesh? One leads to sin. The other leads to righteousness. If we yield to God, we are slaves to righteousness. If we yield to sin, we are slaves to sin. And that's the whole war. That's the Christian life. It's not a playground. It's not that you get saved and then you just play with Jesus until he comes back. When you become a Christian, you enter into a battleground, a war. And you have to suit up every day when you're in war. You can't, you know, um, bombs going off and people shooting guns at you. You don't want to just walk out there without your helmet or without your, your protective gear. I mean, that would be silly. You're going to make sure that you have every inch of your body covered with some form of armor because you know that at any moment you could be blown up. And you want to be protected. And so you have to suit up every day. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians. Look over there in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. And these are very common verses to us, but I think we need to be reminded that this is something that we don't just do when we become a Christian. 
This is something that we do each and every moment, each and every day. Paul says in verse 10 of of Ephesians chapter 6, he says, finally, he's coming to the end of the book, he says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of what? His might. Put on the whole armor of God. Don't just put on part of it, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. It paints a picture of the devil out there scheming to take advantage of you. And that's exactly what he does. The Bible describes him as what? A lion roaring about, right? Roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. So this isn't a game. He says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. It has the idea of demonic activity going on here against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so in verse 13, he says, because of that, because you're in this spiritual war, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. In other words, if you're not clothed in the armor of God, you don't stand a chance against the forces of evil. Having done all, he says, to stand firm means without wavering. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So you're fully clothed, is the idea. There's not an inch of you that's uncovered. Verse 16, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. In other words, he's on the attack. You know, uh, after the cross, and Jesus said it was finished, I mean, we understand, okay, Satan is a defeated foe, right? Well, he's, de- he's, he's deceived. He's, he's still in his mind thinks he's going to pull this out. He's still fighting with everything he has. Um, and that's, that's the, the hard thing to understand. You know, and so we have to realize that, you know, yeah, we may be in a war and we ha- may have overwhelming strength against the enemy. But you know what? It's still a war. You can't just relax and, and just kind of, ah, you know, don't worry about it. It'll be all right. And then they, they blow you up. You can't, you can't go about it that way. That's why in the military, you know, they have a, a phrase that, that basically they say strength is deterrence. Strength is deterrence. And what they mean by that is we want to have so much force that a country wouldn't even think of doing something against us. Um, the submarine my nephew was the, 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 the captain of, the USS Louisiana, a big boomer sub. When we went on a tour, they had, I think, it was, I think it was 24 missile silos down there. And the guy that was giving the tour was explaining to us. I said, so do you have to reload these? You know, like if you shoot all these off. And he goes, well, <laughs> let me explain to you what's in one of these. So they have 24 of these loaded up, ready to go at any time. In each missile silo, there's a missile gets shot out from underneath the ocean. It goes up, 
and each of those missiles has six nuclear warheads attached to it. One of those nuclear warheads, just one of the six on one of the missiles, is more firepower than all the world wars combined. <laughs> so that's called deterrence. And, you know, I mean, I, I think at some point, I don't know if it was my nephew or the guy, he said, yeah, if, if we set these up, we wouldn't want to come back up and surface because, you know, there'd be nothing left. You know, and that's, and that's called deterrence, right? Strength through deterrence. And, and that's the same thing here that we have to understand is that, you know what? Yeah, we understand at the end we win, all right? But that doesn't mean we don't have to go through the battle. There's still a battle raging each and every day. So he says here, put on the, the helmet of salvation, because you got these fiery darts coming at you. You got the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which is why it's so important that we study the Word of God, we commit it to memory, we hide it in our hearts and our minds. Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. In other words, you don't want to be praying in the flesh, in the spirit here doesn't mean speaking in tongues or whatever. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about in the spirit. With all prayer and supplication. To that end, it says, keep alert with all perseverance. Making supplication for all the saints. And also for me. That words may be given to me, Paul is saying, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So we see here Paul saying by reading, by praying, by taking a stand that refuses to yield to sin in any form. That's what we're called to do. Now that's not easy. <laughs> it's not. It's hard. Um, but it is his command for us. And by the way, God never commands us to do something that he doesn't give us the strength and the ability to do. You know, he's not a kind of God that says, okay, yeah, here, you know, go do this. Ha ha, I'm going to sit up here and laugh in heaven as I watch you, you know, try this. You're never going to be able to do it. No, he gives us through the spirit and through the word and, 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 and through even the church. He gives us the, everything we need to fulfill his desire for us. And so we see very clearly here that they not only had their foes, but they had their fights. And then it goes on here, and it talks about the city of Palms or Jericho. Uh, this is kind of reminiscent of their failures. And you say, well, how so? Well, this king who conquered them, he established his headquarters, it says, in the city of the palm trees. It's another name for the city of Jericho. And Jericho, if you know anything about Jericho, that was the first city that Israel conquered when they entered the Promised Land. Back in uh, Joshua chapter 6. That's the first city that they, they conquered. So really, Jericho was really representative of all the victories that God would give them in the future. And so what does this king do? He goes and he takes them down. And he says, by the way, I'm, I'm setting up headquarters in your little cherry city of Jericho that represents all the victories that your God gave, gave you and will give you in the future. And so he set up shop there for 18 years. And they, 
this king set up shop in the very place where they once had enjoyed, enjoyed a very strong mili- military, a very strong spiritual victory. And uh, that must have been hard for Israel to swallow. Wow, look at us now. <laughs> you know, um, and that's the power of the flesh. You know, when we relate that to our own lives, that's, that's the power of the flesh. Israel probably thought, wow, we went in here, we, we knocked down Jericho, man, we got, God's going to give us all these victories, we're just going to march right down. And what they, they got confident, overconfident. They, their, their, their own um, ability to carry these things out, they misunderstood, they thought it was about them, and it wasn't, it was about their trust in God. And see, just when you think when we think that we have achieved victory in a certain area of our life, maybe we're struggling in a certain area, and we finally think, oh, we got it. And we think, wow, that, you know, if you think that that problem with that sin is settled forever, guess what? Here comes the flesh, right? And, it, and the whole thing explodes again. And you sit there going, oh, man. You've got to go back to the Lord again and confess, whatever. It will do everything in its power, the flesh will, to undermine any victories that you have in your Christian life. That's the goal. And they'll, they'll, they wanna, the flesh wants to take back any ground that you have won. And that's why the Christian life is so frustrating at times, right? You, man, you forge along, everything's going great, and you're thinking, whoa, okay. Boy, I haven't had to deal with that in a while, man. This, this is good. God's so good. And then all of a sudden, boom, you let your guard down, and you're right back there looking at the same problem you were before. Um, because it's relentless. It never stops. Um, and, and that's, unfortunately, the spiritual desire within us is not relentless. We don't um, always pursue righteousness. We let our guard down at times. And when we do, Mark my words, you'll lose the battle. When you fail to pray, when you fail to read the word, when you fail to um, avoid exposure to things that you know are going to be tempting in any way, when you fail to take a stand against the flesh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, he says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, people were almost prone to worship this guy. And he says, hey, I got the same problem as everybody else. Um, You never want to assume that someone's above the margin of sin. The moment you do that for yourself or for anybody else, you're going to be sorely disappointed. When he says there the phrase, keep it under, he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control. It means literally, in the original language, to beat it black and blue. That's, that's really what he's saying. So it's no easy task. It's not like, well, I'm just going to live by the Spirit today, okay, you know. No, Paul says, I have to beat my body into subjection. Because when the flesh rises up, you have to what? You have to put it back in its place. And it's not a, it's not a, a tame animal. You literally have to beat it back into place, is what he's saying. 
punch it, assault it, deny it. And that's where when we, when we don't do that, what happens? We, we end up going down that road of sin. Uh, it isn't easy, but if you fail to do it, you'll lose that battle every time. Our, our men went through a study several years ago by John Owen. If you've never read this book, I would really encourage you to read it. It's called The Mortification of Sin. It's a Puritan book, and it's just a small little book, but it's an excellent study. And, and John Owen... I'll just read a couple quotes. He talks about mortifying sin in our, flat, in our body. Um, he asks this one question on, on page five. He says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? You must always be at it while you live. Do not take a day off from this work. Always be killing sin or what? It will be killing you. That's, that's the way it is. You can't afford a day off. He also said this, sin is always active when it seems to be the most quiet. And its waters are often deep when they are calm. We should therefore fight against it and be vigorous at all times and in all conditions, even when there is the least suspicion one other quote, he says, if sin is always acting, we are in trouble if we are not always mortifying, <laughs> you know, killing that sin, putting it down, put, making our flesh um, subject to God's spirit. That's what we're called to do. And so that's, that's kind of reminiscent of their failures. But then you see here in verse 14, their foolishness. Um, Israel failed to honor the will of God in their walk day by day. Uh, they became what? It says, servants of Eglon, this evil, fat, disgusting, pride-filled king. Uh, the word served has the idea of having to work for, having to labor for. They became a slave to this king. And can you imagine the king thinking, yeah, these are the people of God. This is Israel. Look at them now. I'm sitting here, you know fat, dumb, and happy in their city, Jericho, that represents all their victories, and they're my servants. Ha ha. You know, I must be worshiping the right God. Um, Israel had been redeemed to be whose servants? Jehovah's servants, right? That's why God saved them. He didn't save them so that he, they would go serve this king. He saved them so that they would be servants of Jehovah God. And now because of their own sinfulness, what did they do? They became the servants of these pagan kings. And it wasn't just a two-week deal. It was 18 years. 18 years this went on. And then finally they cried out to God. I mean, talk about having a hard heart. Um, and so it, it really showcases for us I would say the power of the flesh. It's, it has the power to enslave us and lead us away from the Lord. That's what the power of the flesh is. Uh, we don't want to take it lightly. It has the power to enslave us. It has the power to cause us to work for the world. It has the power to cause us to work for the devil. It has the power to make us labor for ourself every day and totally, completely ignore the will of God for us. 
It is not what God saved us for. God did not save us so that we would be a servant to our flesh. He did not save us that we might remain the slaves of sin. That's what Paul was saying earlier. He saved us what? To be free. To be free to serve him in Christ. And we're to serve him and him alone, right? And so if you, if you allow the flesh to have its way in your life, you will become its slave. There's no doubt about it. And this is what happens sometimes even in believers' lives. They begin to compromise in small little areas, and they think, well, it's okay, it's not hurting anybody, blah, 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 blah. And they go down that road, and pretty soon they find themselves in a circumstance that potentially is harmful to their obviously harmful to their spiritual life, but embarrassing to themselves and everything else because they went down the wrong road. <laughs> now, yeah, they're still believers and God will chastise them and he'll bring them back and that's all true, but why put yourself through that? Why put yourself through that? Um, I mean, I, I guarantee you, even in the small gathering we have here tonight, you know, you, some of you understand what it's like when you yield to the flesh and you yield to sin because it's a trap and it, it, it has a way of holding you there sin doesn't just tap you on the shoulder and say hey i'm here no it it, it, it literally gets you in its grip and it won't let go and what happens for the believer who's in the trap of of a sinful lifestyle it basically sucks all of the spiritual uh energy out of their lives and they end up being basically a, a, a spiritual shell of what they used to be. And you can take your own inventory, look at your prayer life, look at your devotional life, look at your commitment to the church, look at your commitment to serving Christ, your devotion to God. All that will have a tendency to fall into a state of disrepair if you go down that road. Um, and you can look back on your life and you can see places where you used to enjoy victory. And now it's become a habitation of the flesh. And you see yourself living a life you never imagined when the Lord saved your soul. And so you don't have to stay there. That's, that's, the, that's the, 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 the incredible grace of God, right? I mean, if you are a believer and you're in that state, you don't have to stay in that condition. The Lord can, and he will set you free from that. And so that was their dilemma. In verses 15 to 26, God raises up their deliverer. Their deliverer. Uh, that is where Israel found herself. When she finally got tired, took 18 years, go figure, I don't know why, but it took 18 years of servitude, Israel finally called on the Lord, and he began the process of bringing his people back to himself. Uh, and the first step is always, it's always this, is restoration. In, the first step in restoration is always repentance. There's always repentance. And so let's look at Ehud, uh, Israel's deliverer. Uh, first of all, we see his problem in verse 15. <clears throat> it says there, They cried out to the Lord, and God raised up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a left-handed man. <clears throat> now, Benjamin's allotment of land in, included 
the area around Jericho. And you kind of have to know that because that's where the king was. Okay, so he kind of had a little personal interest in regaining this land, but they would have suffered most under Eglon's reign because they were closest to where Eglon was. So they would have really, Benjamin, tribe of Benjamin would have been under uh, very harsh conditions. They would have suffered most. And so here you have this guy Ehud, a man of Benjamin, and he had a lot of reasons to uh, get this king, get Eglon and his armies gone. Now, we also told here that he was a left-handed man. Um, matter of fact, there was a lot of people, a lot of men from the tribe of Benjamin who were left-handed. Now, you say, well, why does the Bible say that? I don't know. But in Judges, chapter 20, verses 14 to 16, it says this. And you can just listen. 20, 14 to 16, it says, Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go down to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the swords besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. And every one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So they were pretty good with their left hand. Um, and there were also many in Benjamin who were ambidextrous, which is kind of weird in, in, that the Bible brings that up. In First Chronicles uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now these are men who came to David at, at Ziklag while he could not move about freely because of Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men who helped in uh, who who helped him in war in verse 20 it says they were bowmen and could shoot arrows and sling stones with either their right or their left hand they were benjamites saul's kingsmen and so when the bible says that he was a left-handed man in this context in judges it doesn't simply mean that he uses his left hand it, it seems to indicate that somehow the language has the idea that he was bound in the right hand. There was something wrong with his right hand. He wasn't just left-handed because he was left-handed. His right hand was paralyzed. There was something wrong with it. Maybe he was crippled since birth or whatever. But it, it appears that Ehud was crippled on his right side. And so he was forced to use his left hand because his right hand, what, didn't function. And that kind of makes sense when you read it into the story. And that would seem to be a handicap, right? I mean, if you couldn't use your right hand, and you walked in and, and you know, you went to, I went to shake your hand, and you, I couldn't shake your right hand because it just kind of hung. I would say, oh, there's something wrong with you. There's some kind of crippledness going on. You're paralyzed. There's something wrong. That would be a handicap. I wouldn't look at somebody who had a paralyzed right hand and go, man, I wish I was like that guy. You wouldn't want that, right? I mean, nobody wants that. Um, and so if the people of Israel were voting for their deliverer, and they had him lined up, and they saw Ehud standing there with his hand, you know, all, his right hand all lamed out, they probably would say, yeah, we want that guy. He's going he's gonna to be able to fight well. Uh, they wouldn't pick him because he wasn't an obvious deliverer. He wouldn't be made it through the first ballot. 
But we see the story because Ehud took what many would see as a liability, and what did he do? He turned it into his asset. He turned it into something that God could use. And how does that apply to us? Basically, we all have issues. We all have problems. We all have things that, you know, we don't consider uh, a blessing. Maybe we consider it a handicap. Think of even the biblical characters throughout the Bible, right? You had Moses. What was his problem? He got tongue-tied. Couldn't talk (laughs) sometimes. David, he was young, inexperienced. Paul, you take somebody like Paul, he was hated even by the early church. Um, And so we all have some issues that we think hinder us from being all that the Lord would have us to be. And so we kind of use it as an excuse. Well, you know, I can't do that. Well, I can't can't share my testimony with anybody because I I, I get nervous and I can't talk in front of people. So we, we, we... and that's a, you know, that's a common thing, right? But we use that then as an excuse. And God is saying, no, you can't. And the question is this. Do you think God knew about your issue when he saved you? Do you think he knew what was wrong with you? Do you think he knew what was wrong with Moses when he said, hey, Moses, I want you to go do this? Do you think he knew what was David's issue? He's young. When God said, no, you're the guy. Of course he did. And guess what? He saved you anyway. So, what's the point? The point is simply this. God did not save you to fret over what you couldn't do. God did not save you so that you would sit around fretting over what you couldn't do. He saved you so that he could enable you to do what only he could do through you. See, that's so, so important. To realize that he saved you so that he could enable you to do what only he can do through you I have a little thing in my office it says attempt something so impossible that unless God is in it it's doomed to failure and I can't count the number of times I looked at that and thought well that's so true <laughs> you know see we need to stop making excuses about why we can't do this or that or or whatever, and we need to just get busy doing something for the Lord and trust him. Um, I mean, some of our excuses, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of crazy at times. None of them change the fact that when he saved us, he placed his spirit within us, right? He gave us everything that we need, and he gifted us, 1 Corinthians tells us, to serve him and to serve the body that he's called us to. So we need to throw out our excuses and do something tangible for the Lord. Trust him to use you. So then we see here, moving on from his problem, Israel's deliver, we see his plan. Um, now, you have to understand that every so often the people of Israel were required. This wasn't something they did out of delight the king made them do this to pay tribute to Eglon. They, they had to come in and they had to give the king something, a gift or something. And that was to feed his ego and you couldn't disagree because if you did, he'd probably just kill you. So here they, they, 
came up with this plan. They were going to send their gift to Eglon, and they had a delegation of, of people led by Ehud, the cripple. Send the cripple guy. And so Ehud took the liberty of making himself this double-edged blade, dagger, some 14 inches long. And wisely, what he did is, because his right, right side is lame, right? Uh, where'd he put it? He put it on his right side, which kind of makes sense, because if by chance he was walking in there um, and they were going to search him, oh, this guy's lame on his right side, uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> we don't need to check that. And so he strapped the dagger to his right thigh under his cloak, and he went and take the tribute money to the king. And usually that's what the gifts were. They were some form of, of money. And so his plan is to get this king alone, because he couldn't do it with all his servants there. He'd be overrun. And when he does, his plan is, to, he carries it out, right? He's going to assassinate the king. King, that's, that's kind of a crazy plan. It's very daring, all right? This isn't a lighthearted, yeah, let's go have some fun with the king. See if I can stab him a couple times. No, I mean, he, he, he knew this was like do or die, right? And so if Ehud had been caught with that dagger, he would have been killed probably on the spot. But here he was. He was a cripple. What's he going to do? They're probably thinking, oh, this cripple guy. So the guards would have expected to see any kind of sword strapped to his left side because that's the only arm that he could use, not hidden under his right thigh under his garments. And they probably didn't even search him, to be honest, because there's nothing to fear here. This guy's crippled. Big deal. And guess what? The, the application for us is the flesh knows that you are crippled. The flesh knows that you are crippled. The flesh knows that you lack the power in and of yourself to overcome it on your own. It knows that. The flesh thinks you are weak. Just like the king looked at Ehud and thought, oh, this guy's not a, not a threat. The flesh thinks it can control you. The flesh thinks it can rule your life. And guess what? The flesh is right. The flesh is right. It can. But the flesh forgets one important truth, and this is what we need to read remind ourselves of constantly. The flesh forgets about one little thing, the Spirit of God, right? The Spirit of God who, who dwells and lives within us as believers. The flesh forgets that we have this promise from the Lord, 2 Corinthians twelve nine. My grace is sufficient for thee, my strength, for my strength is made perfect in what? In weakness. The flesh forgets about Philippians 4.13 where Paul says, I can do all things through myself. No, through who? Through Christ who strengthens me. The flesh forgets about 1 John 4.4 4, where John writes, greater is he that is in you than he that is what? In the world. The flesh just forgets about that. It thinks, hey, this, this guy's so you know, vulnerable here. He's so weak. The flesh forgets that we've been saved and that for the first time in our lives, we don't have to sin. Before Christ, what were we called? Slaves to sin, right? We had to sin. Now, for the first time, we are slaves to Christ. We have the opportunity 
not to have to sin. It doesn't mean we're, we're not preaching sinless perfection here because we still have the flesh and we're still going to deal with sin each and every day. But for the first time, we have everything within us. God has provided everything that we are able to say no to sin and have victory over sin. And so the flesh forgets that we've been delivered from its power, that we can walk victoriously in victory for the glory of God. So here's Ehud after delivering this money to this king. I mean, can you just imagine you're bringing in the money and you're thinking, I mean, this is going through your head, right? You're going to pull this off. And the delegation leaves and Ehud apparently goes with them out of the king's presence. And then he says, hey, you guys just keep on going. I, I, got, I got to deal with something here. And after they've gone a short distance, he comes back and he tells the king, hey, you know what? I, I got a secret message for you, king. And he's kind of looking around. It's a, you know, it's a secret message for the king, guys. And the king is so prideful and so arrogant. It's like, oh, you're dismissed. Get out of here. You know, he's got a secret message for me, not you, you, you peasants. You know, even though they were the ones that protect the king. What's this guy going to do? He doesn't even, he's only got one arm. And so Ehud says, I don't, I don't want to hear it right now. I'm going to send everybody away. And so he dismisses all of his servants. And then we see here in verses 20 to 26, his performance. He gets the king alone. And Ehud tells the king that he has a message for the king from God. And, and the king stands up and to hear the message. Even the king, he realizes he's honor a word from, from the Almighty God, even though he didn't follow him. It kind of reminds me of you know, when you see people put their hand on the Bible and swear, to, and yet their lives are so far from you know, following anything that has to do with God. What a mockery that must be to the Lord. But so here the king is standing thinking, well, okay, I'll stand up. This is a word from his God. I guess I should be respectful. And it says Ehud reaches under his cloak. He draws the dagger and he thrusts it just with force. You can imagine into this fat guy's body, his stomach. And it says the blade sinks so deep that it even buries the handle in. And the fat closes in around it. And so when Ehud pulled the hand away, you couldn't even see the blade. It was that deep into this guy. He can't pull it out because there's no handle there. So the king is in pretty bad shape. And it's not really matters because he's dead. You know, I mean, you can kill somebody with a knife really quick if you know where to stab him. In up under the rib cage. I mean, they, they don't even take another breath. They're dead. So he's dead. Eglon's carried out, or Ehud carried out the, the assassination. Eglon's dead. What does Ehud do? He locks the doors to the rooftop room where they were, and he makes his escape. And Eglon's servants, Eglon's servants come and they find the doors locked and they think, well, he must be in the restroom or something. Which some translations say he's covering his feet. Basically means he's relieving himself. He must be in the restroom. Um, and it's kind of gross, but it's important to understand. In verse 22, it says, and the dung 
came out, which means basically the king's bowels just emptied themselves when they die, which is usually common when someone dies. And so the locked door and the odor from the chamber kind of convinced his servants, well, he must have, he must really be, uh, you know, the king must be on the throne. I can't literally, you know, I mean, he must be in there going to the bathroom. That's what they're thinking. Well, they wait for a while, and then they realize, okay, um, maybe we need to check on this guy. So they get the key, they open the chamber, and there he is, dead on the floor. And by this time, Ehud has gone, and, you know, that's, that's more information, really, than we want to hear. But I think there's a purpose in this. Um, while they're discussing details <laughs> in this story, I think it, it really does illustrate the nature of the fight that we find ourselves each and every day. If we're going to enjoy victory over the flesh, what, what's going to happen? We're going to have to battle with it. You can't just ignore it. We're going to have to get close to it. Uh, we're going to have to deal it a death blow. It's going to be gritty, dirt, dirty work. It's not for the squeamish physically or spiritually. But it's the only way that you're going to enjoy victory over the flesh. You know, think about it. Jesus described it this way in the Gospels, in Mark chapter 9. If you want to have victory over the flesh, here's what he said in verse 43. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. What? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell to the unquenchable fire verse 45 he says if your foot causes you to sin cut it off it's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell and then in verse 47 he says if your eye causes you to sin tear it out it's better for you to enter the kingdom of god with one eye than with two to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What Jesus is saying there is no step is too great to deal a death blow to the issue of sin in your life. No price is too high. You know, I, I've talked to men throughout the years who, you know, they'll have issues with pornography and, and all this stuff. And I always say the same thing. You know what? It's real easy. Just cut the cord. If you can't deal with it, then get rid of the internet. Oh, I can't do that. I got work. <laughs> That's your problem. That's your problem. What do you want to choose? And inevitably, they, they don't do it. Because that's like cutting your hand off. Especially the day and age we live in today. But you know what? If, if Think if that, was, if that was an issue with you and you were on an island where you didn't have access to anything. You know, that would be a very freeing place to be in. <laughs> be no temptation. There'd be no way for you to fulfill. You, you know, I think that it would provide an avenue of victory. You know, you have to take whatever steps are necessary to see the flesh defeated. If you don't, you're just going to remain its servant as long as you live. And then the last thing here, quickly, Israel's deliverance. In verses 27 to 30, it involved following. When Ehud returned 
from killing Eglon. It says that he sounded the horn. He sounded the ram's horn. And, and basically in the Bible, throughout the Bible, the trumpets were sounded for several reasons, especially in the nation of Israel. One was to announce a victory or a, a feat of some greatness or something like that. They would blow the ram's horn. They would also blow the ram's horn to signal a change of location. Hey, we're moving everybody over to here. Okay. Uh, one thing is going to happen when the Lord comes back and we're raptured out of here. Guess what? The trumpet is going to blow. Why? Because it's a change of location. <laughs> we're moving. Uh, they were blown to demonstrate joy and praise to the Lord. They were also blown to call the people to war. And that's the purpose here in the text. Ehud comes back. He's killed the king. And he says, hey, their leader's down. We've got to go get these guys now. We can't even spare a moment here. So he blows the horn. The people are called to war. God had heard Israel's prayers when they cried out. And he raised up a deliverer. And Ehud had taken the first step to give them victory over their enemies. He basically cut off the head of the serpent. He cut off the head of the leader. And now they needed to destroy the rest of it, the body, the rest of the people that were against Israel. And now the test was simply this. Would the people follow their new deliverer? Would they trust him? Um, Well, they did, and they achieved a great victory. But it didn't come easy in verses 28 and 29. It says, so they went down after him, after Ehud, they followed him, and they seized the fords of Jordan against the Moabites, and they said, and do not allow anyone to pass over. In other words, there's no support coming for you people. We're cutting off any, any, any way of uh, reinforcements here. Verse 29, and they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. These weren't weak guys. These were strong guys. So they cut off the avenues of escape and the means whereby reinforcements could get in. They killed 10,000 of the men. Robust men of valor. It kind of appeals to their physical strength. But they were defeated by Israel irrespective of how much power they had. Irrespective of how much military ability they had. Why? Because God gave them the victory. See, it's not about us. It's not about, you know, how strong we are, because we're not. But we're strong in Christ. And so it involved them fighting. They couldn't just sit on their laurels and say, well, Ehud, you killed the king. Don't worry about it. No, they had to follow their their leader into battle and take care of this. And then it involved finishing. In verse 29, it says, not a man escaped. See, so many times Israel would move in and God would say, go in and wipe everybody out. And guess what? Eh, you know, we let this guy live. We let these people live. And it always comes back to haunt them, right? They, they just openly disobeyed God's command. Well, here they didn't. Israel didn't back off until every one of the last Moabites, Ammonites, and Amalekites in their country were dead. It was a total, complete victory over their enemy. And this teaches us a couple things about our, our own battles with the sin and with the flesh. Um, I think, first of all, it teaches us that God has given us everything we need, as I already said, to enable us to walk in spiritual victory. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us the ability to pray. He's given us his presence in his life. He's given us the church. And if we fail to yield to him and walk in his will, we can never have victory. You just won't have it. It's going to be elusive. But if you follow him, if you do what he tells you, if you follow him humbly and you follow him faithfully, 
then he can and he will keep us from this bondage and sinfulness of the flesh. So we need not fear the size of the power of our enemies. That's the other thing here. We're to fight them with everything that God has given us to fight with. We're to cut off every avenue of escape, every place where the enemy might send reinforcements. We're to fight until every last ounce of the enemy's strength is spent. It's gone. And we're to fight this fight, beloved, until he calls us home to glory. And that's, for some, it's very frustrating the Christian life because you never really get there on this side of glory, do you? It's not like tomorrow you're going to wake up and not have to deal with sin. It's not like tomorrow you're not going to wake up and not be in another spiritual battle. And you're going to, you're going to have that going on. It doesn't matter whether you're 20 or 120. Until you breathe your last and you're in the presence of the Lord, that's going to be a reality you're going to have to face. And the good news is God has given us everything we need to do it. We just need to be obedient to him. And then we're not to tolerate even the tiniest bit of flesh life within us. Every vestige of the flesh must be put to death. That's John Owen's book, Mortify. You know, the flesh. Mortification. Jude, verse 23, says this. Speaking of when we share the gospel and things, we're saving others by snatching them out of the fire. And then it says this, to show, to others show mercy with fear. Then it says, hating even the garment stained by the flesh you know the problem is with most christians is they don't hate their sin they actually kind of like it (laughs) which is scary but that's reality and so we all have problems with the flesh whether it's you know it's it's overindulged self-assured out of control whatever and so we're called to battle the flesh just like they were called to battle their enemies here because it does not have to carry the day. We are on the winning side. It doesn't have to win the victory over us. It does not have to claim the victory in our lives. We are free to obey Christ. We are free to live in a way that's honoring to Christ. A lot of us are like Ehud. We're, we're unlikely conquerors. <laughs> we're all crippled in one way or another. Would you not think so? We're all weak to some degree. We're all prone to spiritual failure. But like Ehud, we can and we will walk in victory when we obey God's word. We need to take the word of God, our dagger, (laughs) hide it away in our hearts, and do what? And assassinate the flesh each and every day. That's what we're called to do. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then just in closing, I'll just read Romans 8, verse 31. It's a good reminder. (laughs) To 39, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from 
the love of Christ. Shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are what? More than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. We don't have to be a victim. We can be the victor. The victor over our flesh. And that's where we want to be, is it not? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the example of Ehud, and we thank you for the example of how you can use somebody who's even handicapped for your honor and for your glory, because it's not in his strength that he claimed this victory. It was in your, your strength and according to your promise. And Lord, thank you for the example that it is for us as Christians as we live in this lost and dying world filled with sin and death all around us. And even in our own lives, we're tainted with our flesh and its evil desires. And Father, every day, every moment is a battle, but that battle can be won. That battle, we can emerge victorious over our flesh, over sin, because we have your spirit dwelling within us. We have your word to equip us. We have the church to support us in fellowship, and we have prayer as our means of communicating with you. Lord, you've given us everything that we need to be victorious in our Christian lives. Help us to stop making excuses for not just all out serving you. No holds barred. Just completely in utter commitment to following you each and every day. Lord, we pray that you would help us through your Spirit's power. Give us that desire. And Lord, if there's any today that are feeling frustrated and feeling beaten down in their spiritual life. It's just one step back. Just one step. For 18 years, Israel was in bondage. And then finally they cried out to the Lord. And God delivered them. And he'll do the same for us. And so we just pray that you would help us to humble ourselves under your sovereign hand. Repent of any sin in our lives. Acknowledge your forgiveness and continue to forge forward in victory with Christ Jesus leading us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, Amen.